You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Henriette Lazaridis on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Terra Nova, and uh, a work of historical fiction that will grip you and take you on a journey, which is exactly what we what we look for in, in great novels. And I love this book, and I know you will, too. Uh, welcome to the show, Henriette. Thank you so much, Hank. And that's such a lovely introduction. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you. Um, I'm happy to have you. Um, Henriette, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Ooh, I think I would have to say when I was probably about 10 and I don't know, maybe did, maybe didn't all kids do this? Like we, I wrote a newspaper that I, you know, hand wrote on sheets of paper and probably even used, I know I had one of those ink pad things where you would, you could stamp one letter at a time. I think I did a little bit of that and sort of <laughs> wanted to create a publication that I could sell to my neighbors. Uh, and that would probably be the first thing the first time I ever wanted to, to really write a story, but I was, I was doing that kind of thing at, at a young age. Love it. You know, there are, um, th- there are certain triggers in life that, that kind of, um, awaken the storytelling gene, uh, if you will, you know, if, if you subscribe to the fact that, that some of us are born to tell stories and, you know, that there's, there's a good argument to, to be made that everyone uh, is a storyteller and you know, it, things get awakened at different points in life. But was, was there uh, was there ever an adult in your life when you were a kid who recognized that gene and and offered some sort of encouragement? Maybe it was a, a parent, maybe it was a teacher or some adult of influence. Yes, actually, really specifically my freshman writing teacher in high school for freshman English, um, how she, I don't, I don't remember how this came about, but she knew I was writing short stories. We would probably call them flash fiction now. And she agreed or offered, I can't remember, to meet with me like on a weekly basis during free periods at school. And she would read these pieces of mine and offer feedback and critique. And Louisa Dittrich, she did this when I was 14 years old. And it really was, she was probably the first person who really took my writing seriously. Not that anyone had been mocking my writing before, but just someone (laughs) who took the time to say, I'm going to work with you on your fiction that you're, that you're writing. Wow. That is fantastic. Um, And, you know, from, Having someone mentor you in that way had to, um, I can only imagine what that did for your creative spirit. 
Yeah, it was really, I, I did take myself very seriously <laughs> as a writer then. I was writing short stories all the time. I was on the high school's literary magazine. It was very much um, an activity that, that I valued about myself and actually my, my world around me valued it too. I was really lucky to have gone to a sort of an artsy high school. So everybody thought it was cool if you were a writer. And my parents actually used to sort of half joking they would say oh here's our daughter the future starving novelist but they didn't <laughs> they weren't bothered by that at all and in fact i went into academia this is maybe getting ahead of our conversation but i i stopped thinking of myself as a, as a novelist at some point or as a future novelist because i wanted to rebel against my parents it was like they made it too too valuable <laughs> to be a writer and so i had to do something different so i went into a different career for a while but Anyway, <laughs> that that is um, that's so interesting because, you know, the the conventional wisdom um, that you receive from parents so often is, you know, it's wonderful that you have a dream. I love that. Now, let's make sure that you have something to fall back on in yeah. case that you know, and and that's such such solid advice uh, from from a parent, but also you know that there's it, it's such a um it's such a struggle especially when you're when you're raising kids because you you do want them to achieve their dreams but you also don't want to see them starve either so you know, that's right that, that, that was really uh that was a lot of forethought that that your parents put in there that's that's amazing yeah it was interesting i mean they also at the same time they would say no matter what you know don't neglect your education and that was about like they were pretty light on advice along with measure twice and cut once. I think those were the only rules they ever gave me, but, but <laughs> not a bad are, rule. Not a good, bad. It's a good rule. It is a yeah. good rule. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So you, you went into academia. Um, what, what was your, your thought process there? Like what, what, what drove you to, to take that uh, career path if you want to? And uh, I say that in air quotes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> It started with really loving being in college and loving my English department and being <laughs> a complete groupie for all of the English professors that I had and admiring them so much that I think I kind of wanted to be like them. And so I, I, I had an opportunity for a scholarship that at first I thought I would use to get a second BA and this was going to be part of my career of being a novelist. I would get a second BA, I would read everything, and then I would embark on writing my own work. But somewhere along the line, before I started that BA, I switched it to get a master's degree because I felt like I needed to do something serious because people were paying money to send me to get this degree. So I needed to sort of earn their good goodwill in me and, and good trust in me by doing something serious. And so that sort of combined with my admiration for my professors made me want to go into academia. And I love teaching. I mean, that's, it's not, it wasn't all about admiring professors. I really loved being a student, but being in those kinds of classroom situations where everybody's kind of teaching everybody else, you know, the, the sort of Socratic method, conversations and discussions through which everybody learns together. And I thought, oh, if I can if I can do that and be in a classroom where I'm leading those kinds of discussions, that would be amazing. And so 
I, I did. And then I got a PhD and then I, I taught for after the PhD, I taught for another 10 years and I was an academic dean for part of that, which was another kind of teaching. I just feel like, oh, you get to teach the whole person, not only the person in class, which was really cool. Um, and then I, at some point, as those 10 years were coming to a close, and they weren't supposed to come to a close, but I brought them to a close. I started to realize, hold on a second, wasn't I supposed to be a writer? <laughs> um, and and I, I eventually, you know, made it possible with with a lot of support so that I could I could sort of step back from academia and go in a different direction. That was I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I was going to ask you is that I, I know a lot of educators um, who have um, taken that path because they it, it for, for whatever reason but if from from my vantage point it, it seems like um, that's a career that that keeps you close to the arts and mm. um, you can kind of keep your fingers on the pulse and um, you know the the thinking is well well I can do this and then I'll have time for my writing as well and then you know like like your experience was it sounds like a decade later you're like wait didn't I get in this so that I I could be a writer and not just yeah. talk about writing um, that that has to be a, a difficult decision point to get to in life. It, it was hard because, I mean, I tried to do both, and I know plenty of people who do. I, I don't know when they sleep because I found that the teaching was, I mean, anybody who teaches knows this. It's it, it's an overwhelming amount of work. It's an overwhelming amount of time, especially doing the kind of half-time dean, half-time um, professor. You end up working more than one job because, of course, neither of those is truly a half-time job. So... I know plenty of people who do both. I found it very challenging to find the time. And, um, but yeah, I think I, I would have liked to have been able to do, to continue to do both. And actually that's, I'm really lucky that I can now do both of those things because I teach writing at Grub Street. And I've been doing that for several years. I was a student at Grub Street for a while, taking master novel classes and such for quite a few years. And after my first novel came out, The Clover House, uh, I think since then I've been teaching pretty regularly at, at Grub Street. And what's wonderful about that is that it's, it, I've discovered, I suppose I knew this all along, but it's a nice antidote to the solitary nature of writing that you teach. Teach The other benefit of teaching is that you're, you're putting together, it's a group, it's an organism, it's a team. Right. And a class is like this whole community of 10 or 12 or however many people that are all going to teach each other. And I love being in that kind of miniature community where you're sort of the best thing is when you can kind of stand back and watch the class just sort of go. Um, it's so fun. And it's a wonderful companion to the solitude of writing. There's this, oh, this wonderful community thing that this teamwork thing that I get to do in the classroom love even that. on zoom you know <laughs> yeah yeah um one thing that I love to ask people um and and this this question never gets old to me because everyone's experience is different um we'll we'll use your your first novel the clover house uh as an example and at at one point 
in in your life the clover house did not exist in any form or fashion it just didn't mm-hmm. exist mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me and then either you know something happens something uh kind of kicks off the creative process in your brain uh maybe you read something that that you know, kicks it off. Maybe you see uh, a news uh, article or you're reading something else. And then a a character walks onto the stage of your mind and you're, you're like, who is this? And what are they up to? You know, where do they come from? And, and then it's like, it's like you're a story archeologist and you start digging out the story and, and then you hold it in your hands. And then it's your job as the writer to polish this thing up and to, to bend it and mold it into the story that it will become. Um, what is that? What was that first moment like for you for the Clover House? Okay, I have to say that image, that that analogy is brilliant. I love that of like being the archaeologist who's and then holding the thing up to the light and saying, "What do we have here?" That's I'm I'm going to quote you. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, feel free, feel free. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, it. I wish that it had been sort of binary like that, although I know yeah. that's not really what you described, but I I had, I remember so clearly I was sitting in an armchair reading a novel. It must've been vacation in the middle of semesters or something like that. And I didn't have a teaching load and I was reading an A.S. Byatt novel, not Possession, another one that I don't think is as good, so I won't name it. <laughs> but, but something about it, I just had this feeling of like, oh my God, she made this. Oh my God, she made this out of words. I want to do that too. Hold on a minute. Wasn't I supposed to be a writer? And that was my sort of my aha moment. And and I think quickly my brain went to the stories that I had grown up with. So that was probably like there was no Clover House. And then suddenly there was like, okay, there has to be, I have to make something. I have to make something with words. And there was just this, oh, you've grown up with all these stories. My parents were... Um, They were Greek. They lived in Greece until their mid-30s. My father was occupied uh, during the Second World War by the Germans, my mother by the Italians. And the good news is they didn't have any tragic stories. They were both very fortunate in in a situation that, of course, was tragic. Um, But they had all these adventure stories and kind of exciting stories that they had told me. And so that was kind of the the moment where I wanted to do something with those stories. And it took me a very long time to figure out how to write something that worked because you can't do anything with happy stories. So I eventually had to get rid of everything that was true and make stuff up that was going to be my own and was going to be, you know, have tragedy. <laughs> so, but, but that was probably the moment was, oh, I want to make something. I want to make something. And I just landed on these beautiful stories. And the one that is true is that my mother her family had this farm outside of the city where she grew up that where the overseer would cut paths and make little houses in the clover clover being it, it's a word for a, a taller grass that exists in greece um so that was like oh i have to put this in a book maybe that answers the question yeah i, I love what you said there uh I, I, correct me on, on how you said it that there there are no happy stories. Um, how, how did you how did you phrase yeah, that again? Well, like a happy story, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just right. it's like it's just like standing there saying, 
everything is great. So there's there's no movement, you know. There's, there's no journey for your character. There's no there. journey. <laughs> I oh, mean, if you have everything is, you want, why are you going to go anywhere? That is so true, so true. You know, I I heard the the adage, uh, in, and it's been said by a number of people, but you know, to to have a great story, take a character that that people love, and then stick them in a tree, and then set the tree on fire. You know, right. <laughs> right. and then throw rocks at the tree while it's burning and then cut it down. All the things. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, why do why do stories have to be tragic? What 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 is it to I mean, movement? I get that. But there are well, all okay. stories a journey from, uh, you know, from from darkness to light. How do you think about the the arc of, of a story generally? That's true. I probably revealed a lot about my subconscious when I said all stories have to be tragic. Well, I'm, but but it's so true that, you know, <laughs> but so I many people are listening to this and nodding. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, like there's the, the other adage that says there are only two stories in the world. A person goes on a journey and stranger comes into town. Right. And the truth is those are the same story. They're actually the same story. You're just standing in a different place. Right. Because both of those stories have a town. And a person, <laughs> and either the person is leaving the town, so that's the person going on a journey, or it's the person coming into the town, and that's the stranger. So it's like that at its most basic, you have to have a, a, a change. There has to be this homeostasis that's disrupted. Like, oh, we're, we're leaving now. Or, oh, we added something extra. What are we going to do with that? We added an extra person. We don't know who this person is. Um, so I think... You know, you always have to have a character who wants something, even if they don't know they want it. They have to want something or else they have no reason to move, whether to come in or go out. They're like cats who are always like, I need to, you know, if you have an outdoor cat, they're always by the door wanting to go in or come out or go in or come out. (laughs) (laughs) So you need to have that sort of that movement. And you're right. It doesn't have to end in tragedy. I, I mean, I don't. I don't think Terra Nova necessarily doesn't end in tragedy. Uh, (laughs) I I don't want to give things away, but, you know, the arc doesn't always have to go down. In fact, usually it does have a bit of a rise at the end, right? As the character gains some knowledge and understanding and, uh, yeah, enlightenment. So you you published that first book, um, and uh, you you know it it has some personal meaning to you, and then you know it it uh, it, it it then ventures into fiction as as stories have to do when we when we're writing a novel, they can be informed by real life, but then eventually take on a life of their own. Um, how, how was that novel received, and and what did that uh, in publishing that first book? Did that change your perceptions of of being a novelist, of having work out in the public and, you know, coming to that point where you have to take your hands off of it and it it is what it is at that point? Yeah, I don't know. For one reason or another, I didn't ever have a hard time uh, stepping away from the book and recognizing it as something outside of me like it's done and oh look there it is and people would sometimes I don't know if this is an embarrassing thing to admit but sometimes people would ask me a question about the book and I would I wouldn't know the answer because I'd forgotten um <laughs> so like if you ask me now I might not remember all of the things that happen in the book um as well as a, a, a recent reader of it but 
Um, it was what was interesting to me was I hadn't understood. People will assume that it's you. People will assume that you are the character. And I kept having to sort of reassure people like, no, no, I didn't do those things. <laughs> That's not me. Um, which is, it's interesting how we identify um, the the author with a character, especially if it's a first person point of view. So I don't know. And I certainly had a lot of similarities to Callie, my protagonist, even though I liked to think of her as making kind of all the wrong decisions in situations where I had made in my personal life, the right decisions. Um, but being, being, a, it's such an interesting thing, having a novel published for one thing, given the way publishing works, I, I am, very, very lucky to have published my book. And I know so many authors who are amazing and who haven't had the weird good luck that I've had. And so I'm really mindful that while good books are the ones that get published, there are so many other good books that haven't, let's say, haven't yet been able to be published. Um, and that's just a sad part of the way the, the business works right now. Um, so it's a funny thing. And when you get published, like when you're looking ahead to it, you think it's going to change your life somehow. And for some people, I think it does because they have, they actually get fame and fortune and their lives actually change. But it's a very small percentage. I think for the rest of us, your life goes on being what it is. And that's actually right. like, if you have a good life, that's kind of reassuring. Like, you know, the dust will settle and your life goes back to being fine or good. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I have a happy life. I'm very fortunate in my life. So it's something that I think about, like now the book is out. Um, talk to me two, three, four months from now, I probably <laughs> will be having my life go along the same as it is now and the same as it was last week and that's okay it, it's freeing in a sense that that your entire future and and the is not wrapped up in this one project you you know creative people will continue to create and and you know life will be full of experiences you know good and bad and um yeah but now i have this thing that i created that i get to hold Oh, and don't get me wrong. I'm just over the moon that this particular book is is going to be a real thing. I mean, when I opened the box of my author copies, I mean, I'd seen the arcs, so I'd seen it in print. But when I held the hardcover, I actually, oh, yeah. and I wasn't like putting it on, I actually turned the pages and I was saying aloud to my husband, I was saying like, oh, that's there too. <laughs> and, and the dogs are there too. And Izzy is there. Like as if I was like Dorothy waking up, you know, and, and you were there and you were there. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's a really amazing feeling to see your characters that existed only in your head until you put the pen marks on the paper. And then there they are out in the actual real world. That that's a wonderful thing. And I, and I'm really, really count myself lucky to be having this experience. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about the new book, Terra Nova. This is a, a work of historical fiction that uh, is uh, informed, uh, let's just put it that way, uh -huh. um, by the, um, the, the treks to, to Antarctica and the explorers who, um, who, you know, tried to, to, um, 
help us all understand this this place that that we didn't always know about. Um, but it, you know, in the midst of all that, there are uh, relationships and some very human stories going on. Um, first off, why did you choose this this uh, particular event uh, to base a story around? It would it sound really foofy if I said it chose me? But Absolutely <laughs> not. This you know this foofy. is the this is the one show you can listen to where you can say things like the story chose me or <laughs> I just listen to the voices in my head and no one will look at you askew. That's funny, but well, you know when I was and I know exactly I was seven years old and I saw a documentary about Robert Scott. And I know that I was seven because I went and looked it up and was like, was there a documentary? Am I imagining this? And I found it. And sure enough, I was seven years old and I saw this documentary and I was really, really taken by this heroic adventure on skis in snow. I was a skier already then and I loved the winter and I loved adventures that you had outside where you got super cold, but then you got to come inside and get warm. And uh, I, so it really struck a chord with me. And I think this documentary, I, I haven't, I don't know that I could even find it to watch it again, but I have a feeling that it really favored Scott over Amundsen, who was his Norwegian rival to be first to the South Pole. So even though Amundsen was first to the pole, um, I think the documentary really focused on Scott and his nobility because he wrote these amazing diaries and journal entries and letters. And so he was a better storyteller probably than Amundsen was. So he crafted his image really well. And so here I was, this you know, fertile ground for for the 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 hagiography of Robert Scott. And I I named my golden retriever after him, Scotty. We got him a few months later. Um, I was really uh, just obsessed with Robert Scott. And as I got older, like every now and then, I would read stuff about Antarctica just whenever it, it came up. And I always, I thought about someday would I go there? And this is back when like you didn't, it wasn't easy to go, but I was like, how would I ever, could I ever go to Antarctica? And um, as again, as I got older, I started to think more about Scott getting to the South Pole, going all that way and getting there. And I mean, think about this. It's white all around, right? It's terrible weather. And, and there's someone else's flag. I just can't ever stop being <laughs> amazed at what that must have been like in the middle of nothing. There's no other human or even animal evidence in this whole place for like hundreds of miles around and there's a flag and when you see the flag you know you lost and on top of that you know now you got to go back because for two reasons one Amundsen could die on the way back so right. you still could be kind of the quote-unquote winner but also you you have to go back because you can't just lay down lie down and and, and die there at, at latitude 90 which of course the sad thing is on the way back, Scott and his three, no, four other members of his polar party, they did die. Um, but anyway, that moment of Scott looking at that flag, I just thought he did the right thing. He wrote a congratulatory letter to the king of Norway in case it ever would be found with his, you know, 
with his things. And he he did the noble thing. He did the sportsmanlike thing. But what if you didn't? What if a person didn't? And and that was the seed of Terra Nova. So it was like this lifelong fascination with Scott that finally I sat down, like whatever it was, five years ago and said, I got to write this down. I, I, I'm, I can't. Um, the only way I can process this thing that I keep thinking about is by writing it. That is amazing. So, so how did you, you know, your, your, your brain is full of this, this real life person and the story. What was the jumping off point that, uh, that got you to thinking about, you know, aspects of his life that, that you wouldn't know about like his relationships and what, what's waiting for him back home and, you know, how this pursuit that he's after, how is this going to affect, um, you know, all of the other connections in life? Like, where did you allow yourself to start dreaming the story? Yeah, I, well, for one thing, as soon as I realized I was going to write this novel, I basically, I stopped reading anything about Antarctica. I, I have Scott's journals. I have a copy of, you know, some of these other documents and not documents, but, you know, other books and journals about other Antarctic exploration. And I didn't touch them because I didn't want to be influenced by the language or just anything. So I stopped doing that. Um, and I began to think about who my characters would be sort of from scratch. Um, and remember, I went into this really liking Scott. So I and I wanted to create an expedition leader who wasn't a hero. So that was easy. It was, in a way, it was like, okay, forget Robert Scott. He's off there being a good guy. I've got to create a different, more complicated, more problematic Antarctic explorer. So there was Edward Haywood. Um, and I knew from the beginning that I wanted for I don't know how, but I as soon as I knew that there was going to be something problematic, at the South Pole, I knew the photography was going to play a part there. And part of that was the photography from those early uh, expeditions, from Shackleton's expedition, from Scott's two expeditions. It's beautiful. It's amazing. These And the fact that they were able to take photographs on glass plate negatives sometimes. Sometimes they use film, but my photographer in the novel uses glass plate negatives. Um, just the fact that they did that and hauled all that stuff around. It's amazing. So I knew photography was going to play a role. And then I thought of this 1970s movie by Antonioni called Blow Up, which I've always loved. It's a, like Vanessa Redgrave is like 20 years old. It's amazing. It's an amazing movie. Um, and in that movie, this fashion photographer, he's doing a photo shoot with Vanessa Redgrave. And when he's in his darkroom enlarging the photographs, he realizes that he's inadvertently photographed a murder scene and he keeps blowing up the image more and more and more until he sees what it is. And I just have always loved that idea. Yeah. So you can see where this is going. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to, I invented these two characters and it was sort of like, okay, the photographer and the expedition leader, they are so dependent on each other for, their lives, but also for their whole identity. The photographer needs the expedition leader because he's got to photograph him in order to make him his own name as a photographer. The expedition leader, Haywood, needs James Watts, the photographer, because without his pictures, he doesn't have a brand when he comes back. So I knew I wanted them. And then I wanted a triangle because 
triangles are unstable and they move and pairs don't move they they stand still so i introduced this character of viola and i wanted her to be sort of like a like the penelope who stays behind while odysseus is off doing his thing and you know the way that in the odyssey penelope weaves a tapestry and she's told the suitors who are all after her like your husband's gonna he's never coming back we're gonna marry you um she she tells them okay as soon as my tapestry is done and every night she undoes the tapestry that she has <laughs> done during the day so it's like this perfect delaying tactic right and i thought about her and i thought about like what would a what would a 1910 london version of penelope be she would be an artist. She would be doing her own thing. She would be ambivalent about these men coming back. Like their return would pose a problem for her. Like I want them to come back. I want them to be alive. I love them both. But also, damn it, when they come back, I'm going to have to stop doing certain things that I've been doing while they're gone. So I wanted like there's like those are the things that I was thinking about. It's like, ooh, OK, put these things in the hopper and shake it up and see what comes out. And Viola was born, huh? And Viola was born. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the, what a what a, a a great story, and uh, it. I'm, I'm so many questions that are going to give away too much of the book, so I'm I'm carefully trying to to think of uh, how to how to ask some of this, but um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I'm just I'm fascinated that. Uh, historical fiction especially um because the farther we get away from events um the the more we're we're losing a lot of the the texture to stories and uh there's there's so much like specifically right now like history uh world war ii historical fiction that's coming out and mm. I, i've often wondered if it's because we're we're losing the people from that generation and we're losing a lot of the stories around that. And, you know, the farther you get away from a historical event, the more it gets reduced to, to bullet points, you know, in a history class, um, yeah. just because there's just not, not enough time. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, and, and stories like Terra Nova, um, are, are so important to, to, uh, to keep us in touch with, with the the spirit of adventure and you know it, it's so easy to to kind of reduce these people that were involved in that to to just bullet points and they were real people with real entanglements and it, it's it's just so fun to kind of peel back the layers of history like this oh yeah i, I i'm glad you think so i i certainly i think so too <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you're hearing this, Terra Nova is on sale everywhere. Um, Henriette, is uh, is it going to be available in audiobook? It is, yep. Audio. Have you heard any of the production yet? I haven't. I haven't. Um, I've heard, of course, the voices, you know, that, yeah. they, that they chose, that, were, that I got to sort of help choose. Um, and I think they're they're great, so I'll have to take a listen. Yeah, I can't wait to, to hear it because this just seems like it's a story very well suited to that format i think it would be a, a great adventure to go on in that way ah, yeah. yeah well we're going to put links in the show notes where you can grab terra nova in uh, if you want to hold the the hardcover in your hands like henriette was talking about or <laughs> kindle edition or if you prefer audiobooks we'll put links for all of those 
in the show notes. Um, Henriette, if people are, are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, is there a place online where they can connect with you? Yeah, sure. The best place is my website, and that's um, henriettelazaridis.com, which I know is hard to spell. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, should I spell it? it, should, it sure yeah okay so it's h-e-n-r-i-e-t-t-e-l-a-z-a-r-i-d-i-s.com excellent and we'll put a link in the show notes also to uh, thank you if folks want to click over there and, and uh, make it easy to find you uh henriette this has been so much fun chatting uh thank you for the book and thank you uh for taking time to come on the show today Oh, thank you, Hank. Your questions were wonderful. It's been wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. 